Welcome to Everyday Driver, where cars are more than just transportation. They're freedom, a common ground, a way to grow, and can even make life better. We're here to help everyone find a car they love and discover all the ways they connect us. I'm Paul. I'm Todd. And this is The Car Debate. Haven't done this in a while, but we are currently traveling for production for the show. Yeah, you can probably tell the audio quality is not quite what we're used to because we're not in the studio. We're traveling, as Todd said. We're doing two TV episodes Mm -hmm. for season eight. So we're getting work done, but we're on the road and podcasting to you guys. So thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. We've got a really cool topic Tuesday from Nick asking a question about... Uh, let's see, broken down sports cars and why they might be better, or are they are they gone forever is part of his question. And then after the break, we'll also have uh, Frank writing in about crashing a car, and he's so embarrassed, crashing a car he loved. But that means, what does he replace it with? Plus, you guys are bombarding us with lots of great questions. That's coming, too. Yep, agreed. Well, we've got to just jump in right to our topic Tuesday. This is Nick writing to us. And he says, I've started my own British Jank Challenge. I referred to that (laughs) a few podcasts back, a few episodes back. What happened was, is that Nick bought a mid-70s Triumph Spitfire for very cheap, and he's been thrashing it around every back road he can find. And he says, by thrashing, I mean driving flat out and still struggling to keep up with the base model Jettas and Pri. Yep. If there was a British car problem, he probably would have won it in his first two weeks of ownership. He's had it all. My favorite, actually. He said he's he's worked on just about everything he can think of. Just about every car, part of the car has been touched. His favorite, though, and he's pointing it right at me, his favorite, though, is he's had um, electrical problems, thanks to <laughs> Lewis Electrics, which are historical uh, British electrics in cars that were awful. The, my favorite joke ever, and there are many, is Lucas, get home before dark. But he's had to fix two things. The headlights and the windshield wiper motor, because those are both provided by Lucas Electric. So he has done honestly just about everything to keep this car running but he's able to drive it flat out and not care about it which is fascinating he says he had some bad misfiring because of all the things the clamp for the distributor was loose which causes the entire distributor to (laughs) rotate under heavy throttle which throws off the timing because of course it does are you changing the timing no i'm just moving the throttle it's (laughs) just Hard gonna, acceleration yeah. changes the timing. It causes to that's misfire. Am, that's amazing, honestly, yeah. <laughs> well, so he bought the car because he wanted something to drive quickly and spiritedly without the fear of speeding tickets. Sure, sure. It has been perfect on some of the twisty mid-state New York roads where Nick is. Low speed limits, but plenty of sharp turns through the woods and mountains. And he says the steering is a little vague until it bites, till the tires bite, And then the car dives into corners with almost no effort, despite having no power steering. (laughs) But now, because it's so underpowered, he can drive at nine-tenths everywhere with this great little carbureted motor singing and snarling, he says, hilariously sliding the small tires around sharp corners. (laughs) I'm glad you can get tires for it. (laughs) He says the last tenth is reserved specifically for glancing over at the temperature gauge and keeping distance because he doesn't have power brakes. Wow. All right. All right. Well, so here's, he's starting to work towards the overall question. Mm-hmm. But he says, I understand the car is objectively terrible. <laughs> it's, it's the car. Nick has the car that his terrible. wife kind of goes, why do you have that? This, it's, it's one of those conversation cars where it's just like, why do you have this again? And those of us that are car people, we have things that people that aren't car people look at and just go, 
but why do you like that? I mean, yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple from our Car enthusiasts life. would, at first glance, think, now, what are you doing? Yes, but I think it's the non-car people that really question. I mean, I'll give you two great examples. Chance, who shoots for us, is on this trip with us. Yeah. He has that 996 uh-huh, uh-huh. with a crazy loud exhaust, and he loves it. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. I have a Lotus Elise, which honestly, by any normal, I'm going to drive and do normal things measure, is terrible. But yet, from sure, a, as a driving sure. tool, it's brilliant. Yeah. So uh-huh. if you if you zoom out, and that's kind of what Nick does. Nick is aware enough to zoom out and be like, from all the kind of normal standard, I need a car to do things. It's awful. It's slow <laughs> to accelerate. It doesn't stop well. There's no AC. Stuff keeps breaking. He's aware of the fact that by a normal metric, this is a bad car. But it doesn't take away the fact that he loves it because he loves the handling. He knows that if he measured against his like a normal GTI, it's awful, but he drives it and loves it so much, he doesn't care. Oh, Nick, you've got me laughing because it says the, the low curb weight of 1,700 pounds is a lie because he's still afraid to leave home with all the, in, the entire trunk, he says, weighed down with tools. He takes it all with him, yep. Which is hilarious. Highway driving is terrifying, apparently, because this thing is tiny. And he thought he spotted a new type of crossover, but turns out it was just a Corolla that he was looking up at. Of course he was. A Corolla. You're looking up (laughs) at a Corolla. But on the other hand, this car has been the most emotionally satisfying driver experience he's ever had. The analog feel of everything is imperfect but tangible. Mm -hmm. There's so much response in everything. The car communicates with you in every action taken. The four-speed manual, he says, is long throw but gives you a satisfying thunk you can feel in your fingertips. Mm-hmm. He says the styling, the noise, the feel are an emotional experience, and even his minister of finance loves it. Despite That's actually the fact very cool. She has to immediately shower to get the gas smell out of her hair. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Which all leads us to the question for Topic Tuesday, and that is do we think manufacturers will give us, us, the collective we, the royal we, us Those enthusiasts. Those of us that love cars, yeah, love driving. Will they give us more sports cars that are valued being more emotionally satisfying in style and sound and driving feel over being measurably good on paper? And if not, do we think it's more to do with the regulations and the crash rating and decibel restrictions, fuel economy numbers, mm-hmm. or more of a human nature? That the few people who are buying sports cars tend to do from what seems to be like having something to prove or being the best or owning the best on mm-hmm. paper or zero to 60 times or whatever other metric that you use to measure yeah, yeah, sports yeah. car ownership and qualify that. Wow, what a, what a deep question. First of all, Nick, I love that you are finding this tangible driving experience mm-hmm. in a terrible car. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. Any car enthusiast would say, well, you know what you need to do is you need to do... <laughs> Blank, blankety, blank, blank, blank. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe they say, ditch the car, leave it by the side of the road with a bumper sticker that says, this is an abandoned car, mm-hmm. and move on to something better. But that's not what you've done. And I love that. Because everybody, well, not everybody, but it seems like when we produce a video and we've got a comparison of two cars, mm-hmm. inevitably, the people who love car A will say, well, it would only win if you did the brake upgrade. Or if you did the sure, ex, sure, you know, sure. throttle position change or the suspension or the whatever, it yeah. would be better. And we're thinking, that's fine, but where does that end? At what point does that, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're off the cliff in modding cars mm-hmm. and 
you know, we talked endlessly about modding out of class, but you're suddenly sliding down this slippery slope of money and time and all this stuff to make it better. And that's not how the car was designed. Well, that's always our discussion is that when we do, when we take cars and we enter and we review cars, especially new cars, the only baseline that is comparable is how it came out of the factory. It's the only baseline mm-hmm. because that's Indeed. where the car company said, okay, that's done now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but then yes, there's always any car that loses. There is always the person that owns the car that loves the car that comes along and says, if you guys only did fill in the blank, yeah. it would yeah. have won. What I like about that is it proves that all of you out there have a car you love, which I really like. But it does create a scenario where you're right. You can tune stuff indefinitely. I think, Nick, the interesting thing about your question is you're, you're hoping that the burst of technology toward, let's be honest, autonomous pods that we're all imagining are coming. Mm. And they're not that close, but we're imagining that. <laughs> but in the process, I will admit this, though, cars are becoming more distant. In the process of cars becoming more distant, more computer-controlled, less in need of us, if you will, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is there an opportunity to fill in the part of the market that doesn't, isn't being served, which is the analog stuff. And if you look at it, the only analog stuff recently, it's still rare, but it exists. You have stuff like, I'm sorry, I'm going to hit it again, the 86 and the current Miata and the stuff that is, at least in the modern time, surprisingly analog. But if you hop in a car from the 90s with a cable throttle and hydraulic steering, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, that recent stuff that feels analog doesn't feel that analog anymore. And Nick is in, like, the yeah. world of firehose analog stuff, where everything yeah, is true. just, you know, you, you can true. feel that it was milled by somebody in a shop somewhere. He's talking old 70s British cars. A guy had a yeah. cigarette hanging out of his mouth when he built that car, okay? <laughs> Probably so. You know, and he only worked a four-hour day. I mean, this was a 70s <laughs> British car, okay? That, that, was, that was built by men in a shed, yeah. like Top Gear likes to say. So are we going to go back there? I, Nick, I don't think we are for two reasons. One... I do think that current crash regulations, current, I hate to say it this way, current concerns of a company to be sued for not making a product safe enough is going to keep Mm. us away from that. Mm. But I also think your second point is much more insidious. And that is, if you don't make a, see my air quotes now, better car than the last one, there's Mm. nothing to market you can't market it as better than the last because it doesn't do a zero sixty better. The 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 only recent modern surprise oh, I can I, think I of see. is the latest Gen Miata. When they released it, it wasn't as powerful as the one generation prior, and I was ast- I'm still astonished they did that. But the trade off was they kind of fixed it was it by smaller now, but... and lighter. Yeah, yeah. So the problem is, mm. and I hate to say it this way, I hate to simplify it this much, but the marketing department needs a bigger number than last time. They need an improvement over the last gen. It needs to be bigger, more comfortable, with more technology, and by the way, it's more powerful and faster. If it's not those things, we have nothing to do. The marketing department is now bored. We need to earn a paycheck. I have to push something. We have to get people excited because it's bigger, better, whatever. There isn't a, well, this isn't as good as the last one, but we think it's better. Is not a marketing <laughs> department choice. Look what it looks like. And I, but I think as yeah, enthusiasts, I we want you to scale it back, but giving us less, possible exception being Porsche who charges you more, giving us less is really hard to market as a good thing. Okay, I see what you're saying. This is very interesting. All right, I'll touch on that first, and that is 
the marketing department looking at a specific car. But this era that we're in, I think there's opportunity for marketing departments worldwide for car companies to Mm -hmm, now mm -hmm. split the efforts and say, we've introduced this new model or we've taken the theme of this prior model because Mm -hmm. they're doing that with electric cars. They're essentially taking the old model and making it better, newer, faster, all the things you were saying. The Hummer. By making it (laughs) electric. Yeah. If they... If they have two directions now and they're saying, okay, we're going one direction with all the people movers, all the new tech, all that kind of stuff, but we're going this other direction too and splitting that off to be able to capture a feeling, there's some marketing spin in mm-hmm. there. There's mm-hmm. yeah. There's paragraphs there's of an opportunity, marketing yeah. to be able to say, this feeling and this kind of pursuit is what we're going after. Mm-hmm. The man plus machine. And I will use Lexus as an example because amazingly enough, if you can believe it, Lexus sent us a VR headset. <laughs> they sent us VR goggles loaded yeah. with the presentation. Now, Lexus could have said, well, here's a link to the video. Here, check out this video for the yeah, new yeah, car. Yeah. We we're driving the LC500 convertible. And instead, they sent us preloaded with all the videos so you mm-hmm. could look around and watch the presentation, but then mm-hmm. everything else was a little bit interactive in a way Yeah. to understand better what they were thinking. It doesn't matter what they're thinking. It just matters how it's delivered. Well, and also, but you bring up Lexus. It's interesting because Lexus has decided 30 years on that the next challenge for them is to create what they're calling the Lexus driving signature. Mm-hmm. Meaning, mm-hmm. now think about this for a second. BMWs from the early 2000s all drove like BMWs. They didn't drive like Mercedes. They didn't drive right. like Porsches. Right. They drove like BMWs. Now, I think that's been watered down some since. But this is what Lexus is interested in. They want their cars to have a personality that is interesting to drive, which is not something Lexus has done really before. And at the same time, they want them all to feel like they are related in driving experience. They are pursuing that. But back to Nick's point here, they aren't going simpler in the process. No, no. I I think about manufacturing. So I want to bring up manufacturing too, and that is the shapes. First of all, let's start with style. The shapes that you see on the 30s and 40s and 60s mm, cars, mm, mm. those were made because of the tools and techniques used to make them weren't as sophisticated as the tools we have nowadays. Great point. Yeah, That's yeah. why they look so beautiful and so clean and simple. You don't see the, the creative stamping, and that's why, by virtue of tech, in the manufacturing process... Designers have had more things to, to pursue. You can sure. add extra lines and extra things on it. Whereas, Hard creases and stuff, yeah. Yeah, the 60s Maseratis and Alphas and Ferraris and all mm-hmm. those beautiful Italian cars, they're just sort of swollen shapes covering up fenders, and you sort of enclose the people in this <laughs> swollen <laughs> bubble shape and give it some style and yeah. a little bit, but you don't want to go too far, and you can't make it too crisp and, you know... You Perfect. had to make it on an English wheel. You had to be able yes. to round it all off and pound it out yourself for sure. Yeah, That's yeah. just by virtue of the tools. Yeah. Now yeah, think yeah. of all the modern milling and injection molding and additive manufacturing processes we have mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. to be able to make things versus then when you bought your car, Nick, they're making castings mm-hmm. and they're kind of filing stuff. They're cutting stuff out of metal and... That's just kind of how it goes together, and I don't want to spend more time and effort to make it 
fancier or Mm -hmm. more expensive because that cuts into the cost of the car, how much it costs to make the car. So we got to keep that cost down. So what's the minimum I can do so it doesn't break immediately? And (laughs) here's this part. Okay, we'll make it out of metal. Well, now we can make things out of injection molded plastics. And now the kinds of plastic materials we have available that are even stronger are astounding. So it, all that kind of stuff are things designers have to know. Engineers, yeah, of course, yeah. you know, sort of live in that world already. But designers have to know this kind of stuff to be able to design something and propose something. Mm-hmm. Here's how I'm thinking this will go together. But back then, the governmental regulations worldwide were not nearly as intrusive enough. Interesting, yeah. To, you know, to what we're dealing with now. Well... In the name of safety, it's not just seat, seat belts anymore. We've got to go really far. We've got to go, you know, wiring harnesses and sensors and airbags and all that kind of stuff. Electronics yeah. all over the car, yeah, yeah. which creates weight and creates bulk and mass to enclose the mm-hmm. safety, the sensors, all that kind of stuff. Think about how boxy front ends of, of cars across the board have gotten. That hasn't been just a weird designer idea but it's not a weird designer idea somebody had never we should copy that it's because of the pedestrian crash standards that have been created that have brought the hoods up away from the engine blocks Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. now everything has a box front end that's not a weird trick that is a regulation being implemented that has changed car design that doesn't relate to the driving but it does relate to what you're talking about how all of these new technologies combined with the desperate need and I put that in quotes because it's important, but sometimes it, it is almost too paramount. The need to make the car safer than the last version mm-hmm, mm-hmm. has now created, okay, well, look at how far away we are from, because how far away from we are from that old great stuff. Because honestly, if you think about it another way, some of the old great stuff we're talking about was also pretty dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, I, yeah. I, I know I've brought this yeah. up before, but I think about it when I drive my Lotus, which was obviously, honestly, in the U.S., on an exception, That's on a right. low-volume right. yeah. car maker exception, which is why it was in the U.S. And the reason they stopped putting it in the U.S. is because the U.S. changes its regulations to, to ask for dual-stage airbags that, that actually uh, inflate at two different levels depending on the severity of the crash. Lotus didn't want to spend the money to do that or couldn't do it for the Elise, so they stopped selling it. In the U.S. and the Evora, they stopped selling for a year or two until they figured out the airbags for that car. So, my my point here is, there are definitely times when I drive the Lotus and I think, hmm, front end of this car is not going to hold up real well if I hit something. Yeah, yeah. If you go back to the cars from the '60s, drive an old E-Type, yeah. drive an old 911, an old 911. Sure. You suddenly feel like you're in a spindly little thing. You because feel vulnerable, yeah. You are, okay? Yeah. But on the other end of the spectrum, back to, to Nick's driving experience, it's so involving. Mm-hmm. You're so alive in it. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're all craving. That's the bring a trailer effect. That mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. the old car effect. When people discover that, like you have, Nick, we're not going back to that time. We're not Sadly, going back I don't to that think era. So either, yeah of feeling that way because of all the new regulations. Mm-hmm. And that's just how things were made. What you're feeling, the the gear shifts and the way it interacts, that's just how it was made. Mm-hmm. That's not a deliberate thought process necessarily on the part of the car manufacturers thinking, well, let me, let me make something that you're really going to be involved with. Over time, engineers want to engineer the feel out of it so it's smoother and better. And we're no longer using straight cut gears we're using helical cut gears, yeah, so they yeah, engage yeah. better and they're smoother and you don't feel it. And we're trying to get away from all that feel. 
I'll give you two other examples outside of cars where, quote unquote, worse is better. Okay. Vinyl records and film photographs. We were just talking a lot we about music talking about over those. dinner. Yeah, we were yeah, just yeah. talking about and just music and, and the recording if media. You, if you've ever heard yeah. your favorite album on vinyl, whoever you are, there, and you don't even need to be an audiophile, I'm just saying, think of your favorite album. Have you ever heard it on vinyl? I feel confident in saying to you, it was a dirtier, less clean recording than when you've heard it before on digital. Certainly, certainly. But it has a, a quality to it. That's interesting. It's 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 not better, but it's engaging, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. true of cars and yeah. film. Actual photographs taken on film and movies shot on film have this same effect. Yeah, and I'm the movie guy for sure. But but there is there is something about the the reality of the way color gets captured on actual motion picture film mm-hmm. that feels fundamentally different. Than it does shot on digital. And there's some, well, please don't get me wrong. I am not a guy that's like, digital is bad. We shoot on digital. <laughs> digital can look phenomenal. Color yeah, correction yeah. is amazing. You can make it look wonderful. But if you've ever seen this, this is a random one. If you see westerns, western film shot on digital, it doesn't look right. Uh, it looks okay. weird. In the same way that I think sci fi films actually look better shot digital. Side note. But my point here is why on earth? Would a film on shot on film ever be more interesting to watch than something shot on the latest thing where it's super clear and it's digital? Because there's a something about the analog in all of these things: music, film, cars. Something about the analog part of it that isn't done with ones and zeros. It it sucks us in more, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's not even something we really can quantify. But I think it is a universal thing as we as humans progress into more digital everything. We are losing tactile touch points that keep us engaged and intrigued. Absolutely, I I don't want to just talk about that arena, Nick. I want to look forward mm. to what is coming. And I am a firm believer that the best design can come out of the most restrictions. If you have a blue sky, clean sheet of paper, Mm -hmm. you know, all those cliches that you say, all right, from the very beginning, you're not going to produce as good of results as if somebody's handing you a lot of restrictions you've got to work around. Mm. You've got to engage your brain more. You've got to really think about you know, how am I going to get around this and solve that need? If you've got a long list of restrictions, of course there's a balance there. It can't be so long that it's, wow, this is impossible. And, you know, here's a box. That's your solution kind of thing. But if you've got a lot of restrictions, then I think some of the best ideas and the best design can be pushed Hmm. from that. Hmm. It can come out of that essentially, because like I was telling you, we have all these new manufacturing processes that never before were available, that have nowhere been close to being used Mm. to their fullest potential yet. And I'll give you an example. When I was in the tech industry, there was some new software. It is starting to be more ubiquitous at this point, but it's lightweighting software. Mm. It's essentially taking the same form language and by calculations using the software to lightweight it to take mass out of it while still retaining the same strength of the material it is. You're, you're kind of Swiss cheesing it, but a to proper bit. 
specs that it stays but strong. It's, it's difficult for a human to calculate sure, the sure. strength points. So what you do is you enter the points of strength, say a chassis. So you, mm-hmm. you put these points in, and these are the hard points that cannot move. And then you let the software calculate the in-betweens of these points. Mm. Now, you can adjust it. In, think of it as sliders. You can adjust it one way, and, and you'll say, all right, I need this to you know, support this much you know, torsional rigidity and a force of this amount in this direction, say vertical direction, sure, sure. and it needs to support this much weight. And so those are your inputs. And then you'll allow... And different points on the chassis, on the vehicle, will require different inputs. Sure. Some might not need to be quite so robust. They can be a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. you'll let the solver, the computer, do the solve. Mm-hmm. This is all called generational design, generative design. And you're, the, the computer can come up with millions of iterations. Sure. But you're looking for what's the right in-between. Where, mm-hmm. Because it'll add more material... Ooh, that, that's getting too heavy. Sure. But then on the other hand, how do we make that? Mm. Okay, let's move the sliders back the other way. Let's go this direction. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we haven't even begun to tap into this kind of potential yet. It's starting to be used when, again, I was with Autodesk and I was working for that company, and they were starting to show this around two companies, like aerospace companies, and mm, sure, Ferrari yeah. in yeah, particular yeah. was using this and say, all right, we need this to be look like this, but... We need it to actually be sculptural and beautiful and let the computer generate that. Hmm. And it, it suddenly, it was 13 pounds and now it's six or seven pounds. Wow. On the other hand, it's more expensive because you're having to do industrial manufacturing, sure, additive manufacturing sure, sure, sure. to get to that crazy shape that a 20-axis mill couldn't even come close to designing. Got it. Yeah. So now that we have that and we're starting to use additive manufacturing, I think there's so much more potential to meet all the requirements that you're talking about for the future, safety and regulations and blah, but also to make something new that we've never felt before. And we're using the same kinds of materials as the old school. It's still iron and steel and aluminum. It's Mm. just made in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I think that future is what marketing teams can now tap into Mm. to say, made in a different way, and it has a, a particular thought in mind to capture the essence of whatever we're going for. Mm-hmm. Lexus driving signature is what they have gone after. But many car companies will use that to define their own future, their own, yeah. what are we going after? And so I don't think these sports cars, as this feel, is ever going to be ignored. It's never going to be a, uh, we're, we're not going to pay attention to that. Maybe some companies might, but other companies are going to want to get to the crux of driving. And I hope so. Is it fun to be so. in this car? We make all the autonomous and the mm-hmm. stuff and the tech and great. But over here is this core thing. Now, they also have to come to grips with it's not going to sell in volume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have to be okay with that. Mm-hmm. As we've discussed in prior episodes, Toyota is perfectly okay with the Supra not selling as well as the CHR or the Corolla or the RAV4 or any of yeah. their other vehicles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're fine with that. And they've still invested the money. Mm-hmm. But then when we all say Toyota, as enthusiasts, what is the first car you think of? The Supra. Mm. Well, maybe the 86 for you, but you know. <laughs> or the Land Cruiser if you're an off-road. Or the Land Cruiser. Yeah, but I take your point. You, you yeah, know yeah. what I mean. I'm just yeah, yeah. using it as but a But it's, it's a halo name. Yeah, totally it is. Absolutely. So what are manufacturers going to do to start integrating new manufacturing techniques into building something? And when the marketing people and the project planners come and say, what are we going to do next to light mm-hmm. a fire under the brand? We've got all the people movers. We've checked all the boxes. How can we make more sales? How can we 
bring people to this brand? What is this new thing we're going to come up with? I bet you, I'm willing to bet significant amounts of money that they'll come to use this, you know, whatever emerging technologies are, which car manufacturers are very much pursuing, Mm -hmm. as are aerospace and any industrial manufacturing, to try to get to a better goal to meet all these requirements. It's going to look different. It's going to feel different. Yeah. But that was the same thing applied then to 70s. That was, we can't do a, a forging. We can only do a casting. Okay. And then we can do the fly cut face of that thing. And that that's about as good as it gets. And we, it's going to feel kind of rough, but it stays within the project brief. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be at a certain price point, And it feels awesome and mechanical now. No, we just made it so it could be cheap enough to... <laughs> Make the thing. You, you know, you're we thinking about all this mechanical. You're reminding deal. me of something you've said before, and that is, we do hope, Nick. We genuinely hope that as car companies get more into, because uh, they've always done this, they're not charity organizations. They're they're going to sell what people buy. As they mm-hmm. get more into CUVs and you know autonomous stuff and electric stuff, that is theoretically volume, or if you will, it's the future that they see they can push. I do hope that factions break off in these companies that want to make something just for drivers. And they do split their, their uh, product lines so that you have all the normal stuff and then you have the outliers. And mm-hmm. you, you break up Toyota. Toyota's kind of doing this right mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. But here's a thought for you real quickly. Can any of us think, off the top of our head, what was your favorite Mazda before... The Miata came out in 89. That car's 30 years old. The interesting thing about the Miata is is think about the Miata, Nick, in relation to your 70s car. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The Miata was Mazda, who was not a big player, sitting down and going, let's make a roadster like all those old roadsters. Now we just think of the Miata. It's existed forever. It's always been. But in the late 80s, there was nothing like that but from the stuff from the 60s and 70s. And all of that stuff didn't run. Mazda yeah. puts a stake in the ground and said, we've made something. They based it on the Lotus Elan. Yeah. Okay, not known for its, its reliability. It's a 70s car. Yeah. yeah. But, but they dropped this new Roadster in the old thinking, but the new version of the old. And mm-hmm. it became an icon. Yes. Let's hope that happens again, Nick. When everything is as uninvolving as possible, let's hope car companies are throwing down the new version of the old feel... Yes. But then the trick is, we have to buy it. We, the collective we, have yes. to go buy it. When Let's it's hope new. they're good, but when they are good, we can't ignore them. We have to buy them. And be like, oh, I'm still looking for old 2002s this is, on this Bring This is the internet problem. No. This is the internet problem because we go, scream, scream, scream. This is what I want. This is what I We're such spoiled children. This is what I want, what I want, what I want. <laughs> and, and a car company goes, oh, you mean like this? And we go, not like that. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. We got to buy this stuff. Yeah, very true. I'm a glass half full kind of a guy, Nick, and I look at the stuff that I was describing to you is now 3 maybe 4 years old at at the point of this recording mm, as far mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. what the software can do. It has come a long way and started to be integrated more into various user programs and it's it's democratized. It's cheap. Mm. Almost anybody can access it. Yeah. But you apply it to so many different kinds of problems. There were examples of chairs. And everybody knows a chair has to have four legs. And there's a certain amount of weight that's on it. But the, the generative design could 
generate so many different kinds of examples mm. using these four points have to carry this amount of weight. And then it would just solve. It would just think. And you're moving the sliders wow. and you're changing the points. Wow. Again, this is three, four years old at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now it's, it's going to be used a lot in the future. I see that. Huh. From the grill designs, you look at the front of a grill of a new Hyundai or Audi and you think, oh, that is... How did somebody model that? That seemed very painstaking. No, it's probably generative design. Interesting. Okay. All and right. that shape you put in your, okay, I want six-sided, you know, next to a four-sided shape, and it has to be squished, and it has to be this long, and let it solve. Let it do it. So you put in your parameters, and then wow. let it solve. So those of you listening who are in this industry, and you understand what I'm talking about already, you know, you've, you've come across it. But this is just, the surface has yet to be scratched in doing so. So the, the technology and manufacturing is going to push the mm-hmm. things that we love to drive. So I look at this as very encouraging. It's just, they're going to look different. They're going to feel different. But I think they're still going to be fun in a new way and very interesting, mm-hmm. engaging in a new way. When you want to spend some time washing your car, but you're short on time, Grios has two new ideas for fast and easy washing in your garage or driveway without rinsing. Try the Rinseless Wash and Wax Kit or the Waterless PFM Spray-On Car Wash Kit from Grios Garage. They're both great if the weather's gotten colder outside or you're an apartment dweller and you live in an area where hose and bucket washing is restricted or inconvenient. You'll get a perfect wash, indoors or outdoors, in a quarter of the time it takes to wash a car normally. These kits are the no-hassle way to keep your car looking really sharp. Griot's Garage products are 100% guaranteed, and all their liquid products are made in the USA. When you're ordering at griotsgarage.com, remember to use the code every day for 15% off liquids and 10% off everything else. That's Griot's, G-R-I-O-T-S. Enjoy the finest quality car care products you can buy at griotsgarage.com. When your car needs new brakes, it's a great time to upgrade for better stopping power. We're excited to partner with PowerStop Brakes for an easy way to get more performance from something you already need. PowerStop is on a mission to deliver better brakes on every vehicle in every situation from daily commuting to towing to track days. These are all bolt-on, direct-fit parts for better braking, no modifications required. Every PowerStop complete brake kit comes with all the parts you need to upgrade your brakes, including pads, rotors, and even those little clips and fasteners. Plus, all their pads are made from a carbon fiber ceramic compound, which they've tested extensively to deliver low dust and noise-free performance. So the next time you need brakes or you simply want to upgrade, visit PowerStop.com and enter your vehicle's information into their easy-to-use car finder. We even found great kits for our SUVs and our cheap sports cars. Give your everyday driver the easy and affordable performance upgrade it deserves at PowerStop.com. The car debate is for poor Frank. And I say poor Frank (laughs) because he is genuinely humiliated and ashamed. Mm. He had, that's the past tense, Mm. he had a 2017 Chevy SS manual that he loved, and he was driving it on a cold and rainy day about a week before he planned to put winter tires on it, and it all went wrong, and he met a concrete barrier, Mm. and it's pretty much dead. Uh, Frank, we're very sorry to hear. It's it's never fun, and yes, it can happen to anybody. Yes, it can. This is weeks before he would have thrown on his winter wheels and tires. Frank's up in Rochester, New York. He says, physically, I'm 100% fine, but emotionally crushed, Hmm. as he loved this car like a newborn child. (laughs) Now, he's a bit of a serial car buyer, as he's owned six cars in the last six years. 
He also works for General Motors, but he's not entirely beholden to the brand. Okay. Previous cars include a 2017 Focus RS, a Chevy Colorado Diesel from 2016, a Chevy Silverado, a Cadillac ATS, and a 1999 BMW 328i manual. Okay. At this point, he hasn't gotten final word from the insurance company, but he says all in, assume a budget of about $40,000. Okay. And his girlfriend has a 2018 Silverado for towing her horse. Her horse. So he has sufficient GM <laughs> content or currency to buy with confidence outside his home He could not buy a GM and still feel like he's like, right. I have my GM over here. I, yeah, totally. Frank is proven to be a car enthusiast because he currently owns a 1988 Alfa Romeo Spider, which he's half restored. <laughs> I actually think the half, half restoring is yeah. what makes him the car enthusiast yeah. there. It's not that he owns the Alpha. It's the fact that he has a car in his exactly. garage that's half restored. Anyway, go on. Exactly. And he says, I've also got about six motorcycles, something like that. He's looking for another performance-oriented sedan. Must be rear-wheel drive-based platform. All-wheel drive's okay, but he didn't really like the front-wheel drive-based focus platform. He plans to drive this all year round using snow, wheels, and tires in the winter. Okay, got He it. only works about five miles from his house, still manages about 20,000 miles a year, doing road trips and visiting parents in the greater New York City area. Okay. He has been spoiled owning mostly new cars, so this car needs to be new enough to have decent phone connectivity. I think I think we couldn't solve that for you. Yeah, but at the same time, if it didn't, and I think we'll solve it anyway. If it didn't, you can update almost anything short of a you know a Volkswagen Phaeton. You can <laughs> replace your head unit in most cars and solve the problem. It's true. Yeah, the Phaeton kind of resisted that, didn't it? it? Because it had an old ancient brain. You couldn't. Yeah. You couldn't. You couldn't bother the brain. Don't bother the brain. That that will only <laughs> lead to, to pain. Well, he's also got a rowdy golden retriever who will need to fit in the back so the rear should be spacious enough for the occasional rear passenger. Now, even though he said I'm a serial car buyer, he was not yet done with his SS experience. So he loves the on-demand power, the glorious exhaust note, the sleeper status, and the practicality and comfort. First of all, the first question is, should he just get another SS? Now, he's open to replacing it as long as it's a manual. He says the automatic is hopeless. He's looking at first-gen Panamera turbos. He found one on CarMax for $46,000, but he says, I know there's cheaper ones out there. E36 Mercedes wagons. Okay. Interesting. Pretty cool. He'd prefer a manual car, but he could could be swayed for a good automatic. And before you say it, what are we, (laughs) foregone conclusions, Frank? Apparently. I hate being a foregone conclusion. He's not a fan of the Stinger. He hasn't driven one, but he has sat in one, was not impressed with the passenger space. Okay. Which is not uncommon, he says, because his girlfriend also enjoys driving. He's 28 years old, six foot four, 200 pounds. He's interested in, first of all, we need to answer the question, should he get another SS? But then beyond that, what? Well, look, we've said it before. When you have a car taken from you, when, when you get to like, I've, I like this car, it's good, maybe I, maybe I could sell it. Should I have those thoughts? Not because you don't like your car, but you're, maybe I could sell this. Mm-hmm. You're okay. You're, you're, mm-hmm. you're done enough. When the car is taken from you, yeah. a wreck, it's yeah. stolen, somebody hits it in a parking lot, doesn't matter what it is, I almost always feel like if you don't feel like you're done yet, go get another one. Now, okay. fair, Frank is a fair. serial car buyer, though. So my question <laughs> becomes, how much longer would you have had that car, Frank? And can you even say, was it on your mind to, well, wonder what's next or were you just like no no the ss is my bad and only frank can answer that exactly we we don't have any idea so i I really wonder if yeah another ss is fine the problem is the one like you had i think you're also going to compare a lot there's not like there's a lot of them out there 
And so my old one was better. Yeah, this one's I'm, not I'm, as good. I'm worried about that for uh, you too, unless yeah. you find because because there's not enough of them out there. It's just like, well, I'll just go get another one. You're going to have to look for a while to find True. another SS manual True. that check, checks all the boxes. So that's an interesting one. I do think another SS is a good choice. I love the Panamera. Don't go turbo. No, don't go turbo. Yeah. The problem is yeah. look, and I don't I don't know it off the top of my head, but we know people that have bought them and had trouble. Look up the information about the recalls and the engine problems with the turbos because uh, it can be catastrophic. But I actually think you go S or GTS and be happy. Oh, just, yeah. GTS just go S or GTS telling and you, you the GTS would, flavor. You would like that a lot. Definitely. Now, it's not a manual transmission, but you would like that car a lot. The Panamera is really cool. Enough uh, space for your, the dog in the back. Uh, the, e, the E63 wagon... That's a discerning choice. That's uh, that's the that's the car journalist choice right there. Those are so much fun. <laughs> I like that, Frank. I have your car though, just one. Do you? I, I went have a shopping. More, but please tell me what you found. I went tell me what your shot on is our, at our friends autotempest.com. Okay. I typed in my requirements, and I found many. The nicest one that I found so far is over a decade old, but that's okay hmm. because I am here to save you money. I know you're shocked. $40,000. I went shopping for an E90 BMW M3, the sedan with a manual V8, built from 2008 to 2013. And I found you one, an 08 M3 in black, 33.9 in Pasadena, California, actually where I used to live. Cool. 52,000 miles. It looks gorgeous. Oh, ooh. It's funny because Six, that was oh. that was my I think this gets it done car as well. That, that is means the you car. that means you need to go drive it, Frank, because I, I was gonna say E ninety four door as well. Thing is. Very clean. This, this is the look the, at that. E ninety four door with a six speed manual. Watch our, our BMW uh, generational film called Icon, where I we want drive that E ninety M three. It's it's an awfully good car and it has here's the thing. That SS that you had, Frank, had a great V8 engine and six-speed manual combination. This is also a great one, and it feels totally different. Look at this. It's thing. a really, really interesting. There's V8. many on Auto Tempest. Most yeah, of the ones I found have between sixty and ninety thousand miles. So it kind of depends mm-hmm. the year, the mileage, the maintenance, all that stuff. But you have a plethora of choice, which is lovely. They're really good. They're really good. Oh, oh. I love the proportions on the sedans a lot better. I, I agree with you. I think I think that was the one everybody thinks of, and this is that mid two thousands range. Everybody th- I think think thinks of the two door. I think the four door is where that car is. That's just it's kind of magic. I think so too. And the good news is because they're going to be a little bit higher mileage, but you're going to pay less. The commitment is going to feel like less of a commitment. The, mm, interesting. Oh, I'm point. going to a new car. Uh, BMW, what's the maintenance going to be like, the fuel mileage, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. On the other hand, I'm not spending as much as I probably sure. spend on the SS. Sure, yeah. So that feels, it takes the sting out of it a little yeah, bit. I see it, I see it, yeah, yeah. And again, depending on the car that you find and that you fall in love with, all of these are great. It just kind of leaves room for, okay, I didn't spend all my money. Mm-hmm. I know, all of you are saying, what did you do with Paul? Paul didn't spend all the money, what's going on, yeah. <laughs> Who is this guy talking to me on the podcast? But th- that is the one car that popped in my mind when you said all these requirements, there's nothing else. Because when you say a good automatic, really the one Todd and I know is the Alfa Romeo Quadrifoglio. Yeah. The Julia Quadrifoglio. That's that is on a my, good automatic. And that here's the thing. There's two cars on my wild card list. Because I, I agree with you on the E90. Completely agree. Two cars on my wild card list, and they're both there because legitimately... 
you don't need 40, you need 50. Oh. <laughs> and one of them is the CTSV wagon. <laughs> Todd's going to do it for me today. Yes. He's going to ruin One of them budget. is the CTSV wagon, and the other is the Julia Quadrifolio. And if you don't have 50 grand, you can't really go shop for That's those cars. True. No. That's true. At 40, I think the E90 is the play. This is so tasty for They're 30. They're so nice. Okay, that's the nicest one I could find. But if you really want to go nuts, just visit EnthusiastAuto.com. Our friends there have Ooh. lots of ridiculously expensive, beautiful... They're gorgeous, but you will pay every dime. You all, it almost, They're the nicest. They're the choice. They the are the choice. best, but they're almost going to charge you to look at the website. It's expensive at that's Enthusiast true. Auto. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at new ones. Yeah, oh, it's all bad. Gorgeous stuff. But then just hang on. Because you're going to look at the price thinking, oh, that looks clean. I can afford what? Double what I was thinking? <laughs> it looks gorgeous, but oh, these man, that hurts. But, yeah, they're, they're good stuff. So, Frank, go check those out. Please keep us posted. We're very sorry that you crashed your car and that you were not quite done with it yet. And it could happen to anybody. But pick yourself up. Dust yourself off. I, you know, there's more lots of fun driving to be had. And you're off to a new experience. Take a guess at the one thing we can't get enough of, car stuff. That's right. That's why we love Haggerty Drivers Club. Starting at $45 a year, you'll get six issues of the award-winning Haggerty Drivers Club magazine, which is chock full of interesting reads and beautiful photos. You'll also get access to members-only live stream on topics that range from car values to automotive history, DIY tutorials, and a whole lot more. Plus, membership comes with tons of automotive discounts from big brands, including Deal of the Week, which is always an exclusive deal that only lasts a couple of days. If you love cars, and we know you do, this club is for you. Learn more at haggerty.com slash everydaydriver. Lots of good audience questions coming at us as always. Thank you guys for always responding when we ask for questions. It, it adds this fantastic little unique part to every show we do because mm -hmm. we never know to some degree what we're going to be talking about. I mean, yeah, we, we get all these great, <laughs> great car debates you guys send in in Topic Tuesdays, and thank you for doing that. Everyday Driver TV at Gmail is the email address to send those directly, or you can go to the website, everydaydriver.com, go to the contact button under About. You can send stuff there. Both goes to the same place, same email address. We appreciate all of that. But then these questions create this kind of random wild card thing that happens every time. where We just never know what we're going to talk about. It's great. I'm going to start here with Hal Bullock talking about car shows, specifically oh, British good. car I'm, shows. I'm glad you did because I was going to come. He's asking, that. why do we think that Top Gear is a more popular show than Fifth Gear? He looks at Fifth Gear and sees more of an actual car show, and he feels like a lot of the Top Gear stuff is more contrived and less car-focused. What do we think is going on? What do okay. we think is better? Okay. Hal, first off, your assessment is correct. Fifth Gear is a superb car show. It is a show for car people to talk about cars. Tiff Nidell is back doing something. He's been doing great stuff. Everybody. What's Here's he the thing. doing now? Tiff, Tiff's the guy that taught Jeremy Clarkson how to drive well. <laughs> Truthfully, yeah. I mean, T Tiff, Tiff was, is a shoe. Yes, Tiff was known he to be fantastic to drift. And everybody, he, he could. He taught Jeremy Clarkson how to drive like that. So that's funny. That's funny. But Fifth Gear has always been a focused car show, and Tiff was on Top Gear in the late '90s when it was canceled, and the other person on Top Gear at the time was Jeremy Clarkson, mm. and then Clarkson re reboots it as a different kind of show, and I'll get there in a second. And then Tiff goes off and creates Fifth Gear. Okay. So Fifth Gear is a much better car show, but Top Gear is about spectacle. And if you're mm -hmm. watching the updated versions they're doing now with Chris Harris and the, and the other two British guys, Freddie Flintoff and Patty McGinnis, if I'm getting it right, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. show is so much about the spectacle. And it you're is, right. You're right. Here's, here's the thing, yeah. Hal, is 
Top Gear under Clarkson and Willman, and carrying on now, even though they've gone on to do Grand Tour, they found a formula that made a car show broad for non-car people. And it is, in many ways, a show about drama, spectacle, or travel that happens to be related to cars. My joke forever about Top Gear is it's a travel show with a car problem. It's not the other way around. Which is true. It's no longer a joke. That's absolutely what Grand Tour is. Grand Tour is a travel show with a car problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the thing is, if you get non-car people, they're intrigued enough to watch it. And the car stuff, they probably zoned out for. I'll go you one further, Hal, and this is frightening. When they did a U.S. Top Gear on the History Channel a few seasons back, yeah, a few right. years back, they did like three or four seasons, Rutledge Wood, Tanner Faust, and the third person, Adam. Adam. Ferrara, okay? Ferrara, yep. I knew an editor on that show in the first season. Oh, Tim, uh, yes. what's his name? Tim, exactly, yeah, was an yeah, editor yeah. on the show. Here's the interesting thing. They did audience testing. And the audience testing they did was the real-time testing. Now, if you've never seen or heard this, literally, you've got people in a room, and they have a dial. And they turn it up when they like what they see, and they turn it down when it doesn't interest them or they get bored. And you're showing them the thing, and it is real-time dials and That's data. That's kind of weird. Okay? Wow. When they were doing spectacle or travel... In general, the lines all went up. Everybody got excited when they did a car piece. And there was, I remember in the first season, Tanner Faust did a 9 11 test at night in downtown LA where oh, he was right. sideways for most of it. And it was brilliant. That was really well great shot. Great driving, Being really well shot. Everything was yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That scored terribly. All the dials turned down while they just did a car review. Because, now, I would love to know, and, uh, and Tim didn't know this, I uh, would love to know. Where did they get the audience? I'm guessing it was an audience of non-car people. But, they're, but sure, Top Gear is trying sure. to be as broad as possible, which means you want non-car people to like it, and they don't like car reviews as much, so the dials turn down. But if we do spectacle and absurdity and travel, the whole family can watch. You don't have to like cars. That's the difference. All right, Barrett Jero says, Each of us can have a free car from 2020 that we have to hold on to for life. Hmm. What car are you picking? Hmm. This is way too easy for me. Okay. It is a C8 Corvette. Oh. Done and done and done. Yeah, that's a great choice. That's a really strong choice. We're done. Probably the convertible, and we're, we're good. That's a, that's a very strong choice. I, I don't know that I can top that. I do think a Miata RF is going to be timeless, though. That'll be. I think. I, I like think that. the That's C8 good. is fantastic. Yeah. I think in twenty years the C8 is going to feel old. I think in twenty years the RF is going to feel classic. Okay, that's a good distinction. I, I like that. I like that. I think the, I'd go there. The RF is, oh, it's so compelling. It's always compelling. R.C. Lowe's says, has the Julia been around long enough to get a feel for its reliability? Would we consider buying a used one? You know what? I absolutely would. In spite of the fact that some of the press cars when they were first out, some press folks had problems. And I, and I say this, I say this not in a weird way, but we genuinely had no issues we had a quadrifolio on track. We had a quadrifolio for a long uh, test mm-hmm, drive for a mm-hmm. while. We put it up yep. against the M3. We drove base models. Everyone we had worked flawlessly. We never had one hiccup. But yet car and driver had a long-termer that was terrible, 
And they also at one point had a press car that was terrible. Yeah. I and I don't think I don't everyone we've had has been great. Exactly. So so <laughs> honestly, we haven't had issues, but I know people that have bought them used. I think Derek actually has a quadrifolio right now that he loves. He bought used. I'm glad he and, should love it. But we also had a couple of you wrote us early on in in the first year of your ownership and said you weren't having any problems. And one of you had a theory, which I think is interesting. Right. Right. That you think that the early press cars were under-batteried. I don't know that that's a term, but follow my, follow my point. They didn't have a heavy-duty enough battery, and that caused, as we've seen on the Maserati and other things, a series of gremlins because it didn't have enough battery power. Yeah. And this owner that happened to write us said that one of the first things he did was he put an upgraded battery in his car because he always does it. And it was it ran much better than it did before he did that. And he wondered, he wondered, he doesn't know, if that might have been the source of some of the gremlins for some of the press cars, which I wouldn't be surprised by. Okay. All okay. of this to say, I would buy and have, I must admit, looked, I would buy a Quadrifoglio. I would buy just a base Julie if I was shopping in that market. They're excellent. I would buy one right You're now. You're looking at Quadrifoglios. I am. You're right. I can't begin to afford one because that's the one I want. But even every time I drive the base Julia, great. But here we are, three years after first driving one, almost more than that, three mm-hmm. years yeah. of driving the, the Quadrifoglio thinking, all right, three to five years is going to yeah, be yeah. a sweet spot for these cars. Here we are. Here we are. I think I, it's time. I think. I agree. Ian Dara, Dara says, how much should we consider occasional use cases when car shopping? Mm. For example, if what you use your car for most of the time is commuting around town and some driving for fun, but in, then you only go on a longer road trip maybe once a year, how much would you consider the road trip ability? Mm. Or would you just say, screw it, it's not worth it, considering I'll only use it that way occasionally? Ian, there is the factor of I just want it that none of us can ignore. Mm. You have a car or you want to buy the car, and it does check most of the boxes and it does most of the things. And clinically speaking, objectively speaking, it does all the things. But it leaves off the, I just want it part. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas other cars come along and you think, oh, I've got to have that car. No, it doesn't match my thing and I'm breaking my own rules to buy it, but I want that car. Uh Uh-huh. That's the one you should buy. Yeah. You're going to love it more than the other one that just does all those boxes. I'm not saying checking all the boxes is bad. And sometimes it's tough to match Mm -hmm. everything you Mm -hmm. need and all the stuff you want in it, too. Yeah. The cars that do that for you, don't sell those. Yeah. (laughs) Keep driving those until you're absolutely sick of them. Yeah. Ian, I'm going to build on this as well. And that is this, honestly, it relates to the thing we say about pickups. If you go to Home Depot once a quarter and you need a pickup for that once a quarter, but you don't need a pickup otherwise, don't buy a pickup. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can rent a pickup at Home Depot to haul all that lumber you do once a quarter. If you're going to take two road trips a year for maybe a grand total of 10 days, don't buy the car for the purpose of the 10-day road trip. I'll tell you a secret. Right, right. Rent something. Yeah. <laughs> because then you don't even put the mileage on your own car. Exactly. Often, exactly. it's surprisingly cheap to rent a car that returns back to where you rented it from for a week. If you start adding up, maybe you rent something that gets better gas mileage in your car. You, it's a savings right there. My wife yeah. and I have done this. Right, right. So it, it, I would say if road tripping is an occasional thing, but your car you want to drive for every other situation isn't good for road tripping, fine. If I was road tripping all the time, if that was what I did all the time, would I have a Lotus? 
Probably not. I've said this before. If I was sitting on the 405 stopped in a commute situation, I wouldn't own a lease. This isn't how I drive. I love that car. So, yeah. so yeah. buy it. Not, I, I love what your point, Paul, because you've got to buy the thing that you love because then when the bill comes every month, you aren't angry about it. But the other part <laughs> or of less it is, angry. Or less angry. You're, you're, yeah, you're less concerned. But the other part of it is buy it so you can use it at its best most of the time. Okay, I like that. Alex HC09 asks, at what point does a company decide to change the corporate mm, look? Mm. More specifically, when will Acura ditch the beak? Have you seen the new Genesis cars? They've looked at that shape and thought, ah, I like that shape. Let's pick that up and do something with it. And it's kind of similar, even though it's oversized. You're saying the Acuras kind of look like the Genesis? The Genesis looks like the Acura with the new GV70. Oh, oh interesting point. It's taken that kind of... That shield shape is, is yeah, similar. Shield. Fair point, fair point, yeah. It looks different because of their execution and their take on it, but... You could find some similarities yeah, in it. Yeah, it does look like they were looking around a bit. That's a good point. Proportionally, yeah. it's a little bit different, but otherwise, look at what they've done, and everybody says, oh, well, that looks great. The answer is, when sales are down, all things considered, mm-hmm. when the sales numbers indicate, yeah, nobody's interested in our stuff anymore. They're just not liking how it looks. And mm-hmm. isn't it amazing how much the looks of things drive sales of cars? doesn't matter how much tech you dump into it. It matters. Is it beautiful? Do I want that gorgeous thing in my life? I'm paying a whole lot for it. Mm-hmm. Do I want it in my life? Is that fun? Do I want to be mm. seen in that? Is that mm. me? And yes, cars can be considered a fashion item. Now, they're well-built enough that you could have them almost forever. But now, there's a lot to be said for the look of a thing. And when sales are down, the dealerships are going to let corporate know and they're going to say, we're not getting this, Guys, the traffic. We're yeah. not getting the sales that we wanted. They were, sales were up in the first two or three years of the model, and now they're down because X competitor is kicking us in the teeth over here with a yeah. better-looking car. Yeah, That's a lot of what it comes down to. They're not going to say, huh, competitor X rides really better than our cars, but man, do our cars look, look great. You know, No, it's going to be, our cars mm. are ugly. They look outdated. Mm. But you have to be careful when it comes to changing the corporate look. That's a different subject than just changing the style. Yeah, we're going to change the lineup. You're the right. The whole corporate look, mm. ooh, that's, that's a big deal. That means you're capturing a new market or you're embarking on a new market mm. never before attempted, like mm. Genesis, Yeah, that you want a piece of. Yeah. That's when you change the corporate look. Interesting, interesting. Speaking of Genesis and Hyundai and all of those things, Tanergy Images says, Volkswagen Atlas or Kia Telluride? He's narrowed things down to both of those. Clearly, you're looking for a seven-seater. You need a large car for a growing family. We, you, you acknowledge that we have an Atlas that we recently drove. We did. We're actually driving two versions. We're waiting to do the, the test drive after we've driven both. However, you're asking, which do we prefer? i got to tell you, Tanner, the Telluride. Telluride. I think I think the Telluride is one yeah. of the best in the segment right now. And the sales numbers prove it. Telluride and Palisade are selling really, really well. I think following those two, another really good contender is the Highlander. But honestly, if it were my money, Telluride. RICHMC says, what should we read into the Pilot Sport 4S being available to fit a 23-inch SUV wheel, but not on the 18s on the back of a 996? I think you're referring to our GLS piece that we recently released. 
Wow. 23 inch wheel. This tells you that all the money's going into performance SUVs, is what it tells you. But yeah. Well, you've hit the nail on the head, and that is follow the money mm. because the margins on those are probably a little bit more, and those are what people are buying. <laughs> not that they're not for 996 18 inch tires back there, but the people doing that probably aren't <laughs> using them up. Well, there's there's far more. It's crazy to think <laughs> Just, about. There is a bigger market for a 23 inch wide tire on a brand new GLS than there is for a person buying an old 996 tire. I hate to say it, it's the old tried and true, true cliche, but follow the money in anything. Apply the now. Let's see. When it comes down to earnings, money, what's the difference? Yep. Okay, that's what's selling. That's what people are buying. It's ties into that side rant real quick a tire yeah side rant real quick Uh, do me a favor there's a little tylenol shaped thing on your tires if you have a sports car you rarely ever drive and you think oh these tires have got years left what's the date inside that tylenol shape it actually is it's the week and the year Mm -hmm. so the first two numbers are the week of the year that it was made if your tires are more than five or six years old I don't care if they're worn out. Let me give you some advice. They're worn out. It's time to get <laughs> Let me new tell tires. You, Just they're worn out. That's it's time. <laughs> uh, Ted M. Adam Green says, "What are my thoughts on the i20N from Hyundai? And do we have any insight if we will get it as the Accent N or Kona N? I think it's brilliant. If you haven't seen the i20N, Hyundai's doing their thing again. They're applying their N magic to one of their smallest hot hatches." It's turbocharged 1.6 liter four cylinder, 203 foot pounds of torque, 201 horsepower, something like that. Manual gearbox, LSD, and front wheel drive, and it just looks tight and fun. Mm, it just mm. looks like fun sitting mm. there, ready to go. I love this thing. I wish this was what people would be buying in America, but they're buying SUVs with 23-inch 23-25 <laughs> series tires on the back. It's crazy. They're really good, but oh my gosh. They've got all these Mo's, normal Eco Sport, N and N custom settings. You can tweak the engine response and the ESC and the exhaust noise and the steering and all. I think they're brilliant, but that's what people are buying in Europe. They're smaller roads. Yeah. We've got space here. We've got yeah. the parking space. Although I think architects hate cars. I bring this up to Todd and Chance all mm-hmm. the time. We run into a new, you know, we're parking over here, and I think, why do architects hate cars? <laughs> you just want to park as many of them as you can get in here. And the door, that's why people have door dings, and it just bugs me. So No consideration for the fact that, you know. Listening to this, I'm curious as to your take on cars. Does it always just have to be as many fit into this space as possible? <laughs> just give me space around my car, my baby. I just want to... <laughs> the Paul Parking School of Architecture. Yes! Opening this fall. Yes! <laughs> There's space between the cars. We, we schedule and plan and design for cars first, and we build a building around the fact that the cars have got space. I mean, no slight to architects anywhere. I just think some of these projects I see, it's like, really? Like... That's the space you gave me for my car? They got done and then decided on cars. That certainly does happen, I think. And that really just, it varies by continent. It's amazing. Thank you guys so much, as always, for all your amazing questions. Please write to us with your social media questions. We put out the call on Mondays and Thursdays, usually, when we're traveling, when we're not traveling, Mm -hmm. for social media questions. But also, write to us every day, drivertv at gmail.com, for all your car debates and your Topic Tuesdays and your car conclusions. 
Really appreciate it. We're always looking forward to next time. Cheers, everyone.